The time is just about 4 o'clock, and you are tuned in to WERU 89.9 FM out of Blue Hill and at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Common Ground Radio. Good afternoon, and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU. My name is CJ Walk, and I am the host for Common Ground Radio, and the topic for today's show is homesteading here in Maine. Homesteading is typically viewed as a model of self-sufficiency, where homesteaders look to produce, create, or harness most or all of the items or processes that are part of their daily lives. Typically, homesteaders are thought of as people who live off the land and grow most of their own food, but it goes a lot further than food, where homesteaders are also producing their own heat and energy, shelter, and usually community. Homesteading can also be a very political act. It's not just a lifestyle, it's a statement. And it's a way of focusing on what is truly important and necessary in our lives. Today's show is a pre-recorded show, and it is a recording of a conversation I had with our guests on June 9th, 2020. And since today's show is pre-recorded, we will not be taking phone calls at this time. Thank you. So today on Common Ground Radio, we are focusing on homesteading here in Maine. And I have a couple of guests with me uh, for the show today. Uh, my first guest is Karen Mary's daughter, and Karen lives uh, up in Bangor and is an urban homesteader there. So Karen, thank you for being here today. Thank you. And I also have Rhonda Welcome, and Rhonda is a homesteader out in Lubeck uh, in Down East. And Rhonda, I wanted to thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you. So... If we could just kind of come back um, and just ask you each a little bit about your background and maybe your current situation uh, to let listeners know um, a little bit of a little bit of your history, that would be great. So if I could kind of jump back to you, Karen, to just ask you a bit about about your background around homesteading. Well, actually, when I was asked about being on the show, I had to look up homesteading to see if it really applied to me. And it says here, it's a lifestyle of self-sufficiency and characterized by subsistence agriculture, home preservation of food, and it may or may not also involve small-scale production of other household goods. So I figured at least around food, I could qualify for that. Um, my partner and I lived for many years out in Monroe and grew most of our own food and put up a lot of food and tried to live on uh, a low-income, simple living and four and a half years ago, we moved into Bangor to be closer to my mother. And we, on purpose, picked a house. It's sort of a suburban neighborhood, but right in, in the city, but with a big backyard. And the first thing that we did was to cover the whole backyard with tarps to kill the grass and then uh, tilled it up when the grass had died. And now we have, you know, a huge garden right in our backyard in a suburban neighborhood. The whole backyard is a garden. 
and and again grow most of our own food and here we added a lot more fruit with fruit trees and fruit shrubs which we actually didn't have before and again uh, do canning freezing root cellaring um, in order to feed ourselves for the most part from our own fruits and vegetables all the rest of the year okay great thank you thank you karen um and Rhonda, if I could ask you the same, a little bit about your background around homesteading. Um, okay. Um, I can say that I read Helen and Scott Nearing's book in 1979. And I took parts of it to heart and parts of it I left behind. I have kept pets and had children. And that wasn't on their list of things to do. But um, I did buy a piece of property and lived without a mortgage and raised uh, animals and all my own garden and went around to other farms and gleaned what was left over, potatoes, corn, things like that, um, so that I could work minimally and still have plenty to eat. Um, I planted fruit trees and I, till 19... Um, probably to, yeah, well, into the 2000s, I homesteaded in Guilford, Maine, mm -hmm. and I still have children that are on the homestead and still raising some livestock and fruit trees and vegetables. Okay. Okay. Um, and then I guess, I think it was interesting, um, Karen, that you had looked up a definition for a homesteading prior, and I'm just curious if there's, um, for either of you, if you kind of hold your own own definitions, or um, maybe what the the key piece of of that homestead um, idea might be for you. Well, I certainly thought it. It made me think of being rural, and of course, we're not rural anymore. We're urban. So somehow, in my mind, well, if I'm living in a city, I can't be a homesteader. So I was reassured by that definition. And also listening to Rhonda, um, it's very interesting being in a city because there's a lot of gleaning we are able to do here um, in addition to our really, really big garden and the food that we're growing. There are three neighborhood pear trees that we are able to get the fruit from every fall for like five or six weeks. I eat two or three pears a day, which is wonderful. We found a nettle patch that I just harvested from, for my nettle tea that I make every year. Uh, we found a rhubarb patch in an ab abandoned house lot uh, that we've been um, harvesting the rhubarb from. Um, apples we've harvested from around the neighborhood. Blueberries, there's a huge blueberry field just two blocks from us. Amazing, right in the city limits. And of course, things like biomass, um, brush, uh, and leaves. We have neighbors now that just dump bags of leaves here, and I mulch, mulch, mulch with the leaves. And wood chips. There are trucks going around chipping up wood on a regular basis from limbs that are down. And two or three times, I've just stopped them and said, where are you going with those? And they dump them in my yard. So I have a great supply of wood chips. So in some respects, living in the city, we have all this bounty that it's not even stuff that we're growing that we're able to use. So um, I think that people think that you can't homestead in the city, but you really can. And of course, you avoid 
a lot of lawn mowing this way. <laughs> I'm sure everybody enjoys avoiding lawn mowing. <laughs> um, so Rhonda, for you, are there kind of parts of the, the definition or your own definition that uh, yes, I, I was going to say with the lawn mowing, I have um, a little miniature horse and I live in the town of Lubeck and I don't mow my lawn and um, folks that are gardening in town love to come and gather some of my compost <laughs> from having him there and um, some of the other neighbors bring me their vegetable scraps to give to the chickens because I do have a few chickens here. Mm -hmm. um, I've raised rabbits here. That's an in-town homesteading. Um, I had five acres where I was homesteading for 37 years. Um, so I've never had a big farm. So I guess my definition of homesteading was always on small amount of land. Um, and you can grow a lot of what you need and what you don't, you can usually find someone who's willing to barter and share. Mm -hmm. Um, that's always been a part of the homesteading for me. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, <clears throat> And then maybe in terms of uh, history, I think it's interesting that you both have spent a significant amount of time in a previous location. And I'm just wondering if I could ask some of the more history when uh, you began homesteading, was it, um, I guess, were you, did you grow up in that type of environment or is it more of a decision you made as you as you approached, you know, later, later on and after moving out of your parents' house or becoming an adult is like what I'm trying to get at, I guess. I, I think I can speak for me as I, I, I read Helen and Scott's book and um, I don't know, I think I got radicalized a little bit. I, I didn't ever try to accomplish the American dream. It didn't hold the same allure that homesteading held for me. Um, the independence of it, um, the, in spite of the hard work and everything you do, you, you have time for your own thoughts in your own, uh, pursuits. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't something my family did. I grew up in Massachusetts, um, and came to Maine in high school. So we didn't, we didn't live on a farm. We did raise a garden after we got to Maine, but before that, no, I didn't have any experience in homesteading. Okay. So it was really the, the Nearing's book that sent you down this, down the path. So yep. to speak. Okay. Yes. For me. Interesting. Karen, yeah, how about when I, you I was not raised in a gardening family either. Uh, my dad, um, as a young man, everybody had gardens then. And when I grew up, he talked about hating it. He hated uh, having to help raise the food. And he was the first member his, of his family to go off to college so he could figure out a way to not have to grow food anymore. Uh, but somehow I was drawn to it as a young adult and I connected up with a friend who had a small garden in her backyard in Orono and started learning some from her. And then I connected up with my partner, Larry, who had a big garden and we got together and I learned a lot of gardening from him. Uh, and our, a lot of our motivation had to do with, again, living more simply, more lightly on the earth, uh, staying out of the mainstream economy, um, health, for, you know, health reasons, having healthy food and not depending on store-bought food. Uh, we also both 
are what are known as war tax resistors. We have refused to pay taxes to the government because we can't support uh, wars. And so that required living more simply and growing a lot of our food was one way to really reduce our expenses. Um, it's been one of the best decisions I think I've ever, ever made in terms of our health, just the active uh, exercise out of doors on a regular basis, mm -hmm. as well as the good food that we eat, um, I think has meant that both of us are now into our older years, but are still in really amazingly good health uh, for our age. And I credit a lot of that to uh, the subsistence farming. Um, so it was, again, for as with Rhonda, a, something, a decision in my adulthood. Uh, but I once I got involved with it, I love gardening. Larry gave me a t-shirt last year, you may have seen, it says, gardening is cheaper than therapy and you get tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now at this time with the pandemic, gardening is such a mental health uh, support to be able to go out there and grow food and in a safe environment, you know, I'm not, I'm not interacting with other people out in my garden, it's at my household. Mm -hmm. And um, it really helps to relieve the stress. Uh, even though I'm a very privileged person, there's still a lot of stress involved with the pandemic. Uh, so I'm grateful to it for that as well. So if I could ask, uh, kind of along the way, you both had mentioned learning some skills and things, but I'm just curious if it mostly was just working side by side with a, you know, a close friend or a partner and, and learning from them or, um, you know, some of it probably coming from the Nearing's books as well. And then a little bit of trial and error on some techniques. Uh, Cause I'm oftentimes I feel like people tend to think of homesteading more as like someone that's a little bit isolated or kind of off on their own, but, more often than not, in my experience with folks, there's a rather strong sense of community. Um, so people really aren't isolated. So I'm just wondering if there are kind of that friend connections, which Karen, you had mentioned, um, learning quite a bit from Larry. Uh, but I'm we're just curious if there's like bigger, bigger networks out there to, to learn skills and share skills. Um, I, I had a neighbor, um, Melba Stone, who grew a garden with her husband, Guy Stone, and Guy Stone had a, one garden and she had another. And they'd been happily married for 30 years, but they didn't go in each other's garden. <laughs> <laughs> and um, her garden had weeds and his garden had none. And they both had their way of gardening. And I learned so much from each of them about growing food. When I first bought my property, they were neighbors. And another neighbor um, guy as well had um, flowers and even sold a few vegetables. So I would go up there and uh, then reading tons of books, um, Common Grounds Fair. I went a lot <laughs> um, and met a lot of people. There was a big back to the land movement at that point. So anytime you got together for a contra dance or anything, if you had a, had a question, there was someone there that usually had experience that could tell you. Mm -hmm. how they did it or how they solved it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was pretty informal for many years. Uh, we, we also traveled in the contra dance crowd and we were living rurally for many years where lots of our neighbors had gardens. Um, but I did decide last year 
finally, after all these years, to take the Cooperative Extension Master Gardener program. So I took that class for a number of months last spring um, and found many things that I had been doing right, many things I had been doing wrong, and many things I just simply didn't even know, So, which was my goal, and I was very pleased with that. But also, I three, four years ago, went to the local elementary school here in Bangor in a, this suburban neighborhood and asked if they were interested in a school garden. And they said yes. So we initiated a garden club and a garden at that, at that school and um, have had an in-ground garden for three years with the kids. Right now it's not with the kids, but and then last year started one at the local fourth and fifth grade um, school that many of the kids from this neighborhood go to when they leave here. So I'm now overseeing two school gardens and that fits my volunteer requirement for the Master Gardener program. Now that's been a lot of community in terms of working with the teachers and the principals and with the kids. Mm -hmm. This spring, of course, the schools were closed. And right now I have planted those gardens and I'm maintaining them with fall crops in hopes that the kids will be back in the fall and can harvest them then. Um, but so I'm, I'm not seeing the kids or the teachers now I'm doing it all by myself, but it has been a wonderful uh, way to interact with people in the neighborhood over the last few years. I also did, I've taken a couple classes at Mofka. Uh, last year I did a, a tree pruning, fruit tree pruning course at Mofka in late February, I think it was. So we were out in the snow pruning trees at the fairgrounds, and that was very, very helpful. So I appreciated that as well. Mm -hmm. How about in just another question, kind of in terms of the background, we talk a lot about uh, food production and things, but I'm curious about um, in your backgrounds, kind of like energy production in terms of uh, the use of electricity any use with solar power or wind power, and then also kind of around home heating, if there was any um, a degree of self-sufficiency around, say, firewood production uh, on the homestead for either of you. I didn't have a large enough lot to produce firewood, but by living in Guilford, and probably a number of you have heard about Puritan making swaps, <laughs> uh, they had bolt wood that was, um, they used birch, and they um, spin and there's, there's pieces that are left when they're done making the swab sticks and the popsicle sticks they also make. So we could collect wood from there. Um, so we used wood heat. Um, and there were a number of other mills around there that would have slab ends. So you could buy bundles and bring those home. Um, so I, we recovered wood that would either be pushed into landfill or, or not used. So I felt like we were still being sustainable, even if the wood wasn't coming directly from our own wood lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we heated with wood in Monroe uh, all the years we lived there. That was our um, principal source of heat. We purchased the wood, um, although for many years we rented a splitter or borrowed a splitter and split it ourselves. Um, and we, we got all our kindling just from around the, the, our neighborhood. We get, here we get plenty of kindling from around the neighborhood. In fact, sometimes we get scrounged wood with that storm we had, um, what, six weeks ago or whatever, lots of downed limbs. 
we could have collected a lot more wood, but I said to Larry, at our age, I'm not, I'm not quite <laughs> collecting firewood anymore. So uh, we actually, um, both in Monroe and here, have had solar panels. And at this house, we also have a heat pump. And the only, the solar panels cover all our energy, our hot water, our heat, except we do have the wood stove we put in here and we burn maybe half a cord of wood a year. That's it. Um, we also put out rain barrels. So we're collecting water from the roof plus, um, you know, downspouts that are directed to the garden. So we really wanted to work on waterscaping here because here we, actually pay for water as opposed to in Monroe where we had a well. Um, so trying to think of ways to conserve water. Um, it's being a little difficult right now with the drought going on and we just planted our garden. So we're gonna end up with a, a little higher water bill this quarter. Usually we're well below the, the minimum for, for water use. Um, so in that respect, we've, we've um, added insulation to the home and really reduced our energy costs and are using renewable energy and um, as little wood as possible because wood can be polluting um, and reduced our water use. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Rhonda, how about for you? Do you have, it, have you used any um, kind of like rain collection systems in the past? Um, I do have, I, I haven't any experience with solar. I have a friend that does, and I was hoping she could join us today, but she wasn't able to, because um, she has 10 years of, of solar experience, and it's, it's very valuable. Um, here, we live in, um, it's lowland, so we dug a hole and put a barrel with holes in it into, into the ground and put sand in the bottom, and mm -hmm. the water... Um, table comes up and down here because it's very boggy. There's a lot of alders that grow and things like that. And our barrel will stay half to three quarters full with that water, which we can use on our gardens. Hmm. Um, you can't drink it, but it works very well on the garden area. And we don't have to use the water that we too would pay for here because it's town water. Um, but we collect it that way from the ground up, but it's not really ground water. It's, it's water from low land. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio. In today's show, we are discussing homesteading here in Maine. My guests on the show are Karen, Mary's daughter, who lives in Bangor, Maine, and Rhonda Welcome, who lives in Lubeck, Maine. This is a pre-recorded show, so we are not taking phone calls today. Thank you. I, I wanted to go back to the skills question that you asked, CJ. Sure. Um, as a result of the pandemic, um, cooperative extensions have been getting lots more interest in gardening and they're a bit overwhelmed. And so now they're asking master gardener volunteers to be mentors to people who, who want to learn gardening, either beginners or intermediate. So um, informally, I've actually ended up over the last two months with friends and, and adult children of friends coming to me and saying, Karen, what about this? What about that? And can I plant this? Can I plant that? And what do I do? Um, so I've been informally mentoring actually a number of folks just in the last two months, but I was just formally um, connected up with a woman who's gone through Cooperative Extension looking for somebody. And we won't be doing it in person because Cooperative Extension won't support that at this point. Uh, but but uh, by phone, email, video chat, whatever, um, I will be 
assisting this person in, in the gardening that she wants to do. And that's another wonderful way to community and share skills. Yeah, it's good to good to know that uh, in your neighborhoods you can be identified as a as kind of a, a good resource to help um, people that are just starting out. Because I know you mentioned extension having a lot of interest in gardening. I know the same has been going for for Mofka and the workshops. Um, most of the in person or maybe all have, have had to be canceled, but changed over to some type of online format or webinar and um, attendance has been pretty strong and there's a lot of interest from folks looking to kind of grow food um, maybe for the first time or maybe get back into it depending on what their situation is so well uh, it's nice it rather than being the weird person in the neighborhood which we kind of are our yard looks so different from everybody else's um, but to be seen as somehow a resource is kind of a nice change of pace mm -hmm. yes I imagine you could get some, maybe some funny looks when the backyard is completely tarped and people are wondering what you're, what you're doing back there. Yes, yes, we've had people ask us, but I think we're pretty well known in the neighborhood now as the people with the big garden. And you said you've been in Bangor for a few years, is that right? We, yes, four and a half years. Okay. And Rhonda, can I ask how long, maybe you, you had mentioned it, but how long you've been in Lubeck? Um, this is going on our eighth year, and um, I think like Karen, I got some odd looks when I first arrived here, and I had rabbits out in the yard, and I was truthful with people that they weren't all pets, <laughs> that I had raised all my own meat for 37 years, and going in the grocery store and buying it in a plastic wrapper, first, I didn't want to, and two, it doesn't taste the same, and it doesn't feel the same to me, so if I was um, going to be on this piece of property, I wanted to raise what I could eat here, and that meant rabbits, and I kept a goat here as well, um, and that I, I would eat the meat from my goats and sell cheese, and people really liked the cheese. Lots of people came by. Um, they really liked the, uh, Elliot is the horse, and he trots around town in a little cart and pulls me. Um, it puts a smile on lots of faces. Um, I feel like he's a Goodwill ambassador. Um, I think people like the sense of uh, slowing down. A lot of people take homesteading to mean that you've got to like work yourself into the ground. And I've always thought that's not exactly what homesteading was. And it's not the picture I got of it. I got a picture of it that I could actually slow down. And some people have called this time during the pandemic and the shutdown, um, the great slowdown. And, um, I was already moving a little slow, and when you go on a pony cart, you're moving very slow. Um, you get to talk to your neighbors. You get a, um, smiles, waves. Um, it does seem to – it does help even during this, like she was saying, it is stressful. And, and for folks here, it is stressful. And if you can put a smile on someone's face, it always feels good. Yeah. And I found that um – because of the choices we've made about our lifestyle, we have lived on an income that's considered a poverty level income our whole adult lives. And yet we're not poor, we're clearly not poor. Um, we live in a comfortable home, we have excellent food, we're in good health. Now it helps that we're 
were raised white middle class USers. I, I don't want to uh, say this was all because of our lifestyle, but but still, you know, people are really, really hurting and struggling at this time. And here we were already living a lifestyle that if you have to be in the middle of a pandemic, this is the best lifestyle, in my opinion, you could have um, so that we're much more resilient. Uh, we're not having to go to the grocery store and wait in lines and risk our health in that way, uh, which I am very grateful for. Um, and and we're, our income is low to begin with. So to get a check for $1,200 from the government is like, wow, that's a huge amount of money for us. Uh, whereas for some people, they just can't even make it. But when you're tied into the mainstream economic system, it is so expensive, so expensive to live that way. Uh, so I think of homesteading, you know, have given that definition that it means stepping outside of that mainstream economy to whatever extent you can. Again, People with privilege are more likely to own a home or be able to buy land, things like that. But still, you can live much more cheaply, much more cheaply than people um, have to pay with a mainstream lifestyle. That's one of the things that, that I took from the nearings was the um, four hours of work, the four hours of their pursuit that you wanted to, and then four hours where you did something in your community. Um, that, that felt like I was doing something for the whole planet. And it, though I had like Karen felt certain that I was privileged, um, I didn't want to use that in a way to gain more. I, I wanted it to be a way to give more. And I have children and, you know, being able to have all they wanted to eat and also have time that I could spend with them in nature and in the garden had a value to me. And when friends came over, there was, you know, I never had to think, well, do I have food enough to put an extra plate on? There was always food enough to put an extra plate on. And that, that, and it felt good that it was good food and that I could share it. And uh, I don't think there's anything as good as picking peas off your own fence and eating them or having the water steaming and putting your corn in there. <laughs> Nothing tastes as good as that. And, uh, all the waste would go to the animals. It just felt very much like a circle of life to me. Homesteading felt like a, a beautiful circle. We've never raised meat. We happen to be vegetarian. Mm -hmm. We do eat eggs. And again, here we are in the middle of the city, and there are two people not far from here who have chickens. Now, don't tell anybody. They're not zoned to have chickens, but the city is not enforcing the zoning, obviously, because... <laughs> One of them is right out, right out on a major street. In fact, you see the chickens out foraging uh, on a regular basis as you drive along this major thoroughfare. So, um, but we've had no difficulty getting fresh local eggs. I considered getting chickens, but it's like, that's one thing that we can barter our vegetables for the eggs and let the egg producers produce the eggs. They're set mm -hmm. up for it, but right here in the city. Yeah, so lots of lots of options out there. I thought it was interesting when you mentioned some of the the gleaning pieces off of the rhubarb in an abandoned lot and some old pear trees, fruit trees just in the city that um, probably aren't really being tended to at all, but they're still producing food if you know where to look, right? 
Yes, yes. In fact, one of them, one of the pear trees that I get tons of pears from every year, the owners of the house, it's a street tree. These are trees that the city planted, uh, but it's in front of their house. So I went and knocked on the door to say, do you mind if I take some of the pears? They said, oh no, no, those pears have a little black film on them and they have those naughty places. We don't think they're good. And I I went home and looked it up because I didn't know that much about pears. And of course, both of those are perfectly natural. So I went back and said to them, it's not a problem, will not hurt you, but they still didn't want to eat those pears. So I take them off their hands every year. Yeah. And I think oftentimes people find that the fruit falling on the ground is kind of a mess that they have to clean up. So mm-hmm. getting it beforehand is probably, um, probably a good benefit on their end. I just wanted, Rhonda, if I could ask you just a little bit, you mentioned raising some of your own meat and rabbits and goats. And I'm just curious if, if you had raised other animals for meat in the past. Um, yes, I, I have had milk cows. I have raised beef. Um, I have raised pigs for pork. Um, I've had a couple sheep, but have not raised sheep. Um, ducks, geese, guinea hens. Um, I do do my own butchering. Uh, I, I have also tried being vegan to a point. I don't eat a lot of meat. Um, and I try to use every bit of the animal when I do, Mm -hmm. um, butcher. Um, I've had people be, you know, a little like, how can you do that after you've loved them and been friends with them? And that's true. And sometimes people, but I've had horses in my life too for a long time and people will say, well, I could never eat that. And I would say, well, I've met some cows that I feel just as if not fonder than I have felt towards some of my horses. Uh, I see them all as very unique and um, thinking, feeling beings. I have used the analogy that it hurt me just as much to pull little baby carrots out of the ground because <laughs> I knew I was, I was ending something's life um, so that something else could grow. I I don't, I have philosophical thoughts on it and moral complications from it, but I haven't stopped doing it. Let's see. I I would like to say, could I say something about the gardening that I learned was a pretty traditional uh, rows or raised beds, whatever. Um, And I, I had someone come here and consult with me a bit on permaculture. And so I'm trying to think more about perennials and how to integrate them into the garden. Um, but one of the things I decided to try, and this is one where I just went on the internet and looked it up, is uh, Hugel culture, which um, I, maybe Mafka, has Mafka done some? Yes, they training? have. Yeah, yep. Hugel culture. So that's where you're building up um, beds with, uh, you start with uh, partially decomposed logs and brush and leaves, and um, and then you plant on top of this bed you've created That's that's basically a a very slow composting bed. And I did, I haven't done that for our vegetable garden because I hadn't read up on it when we established that, but I did it for our fruits. So now I have elderberries, cherries, blueberries, peaches, and plums all planted on hugel beds. And they all seem to be doing well. And I just, every fall, I add some more leaves and wood chips. Or if I have brush, I'll throw brush on the, on the piles to keep, because they'll gradually um, diminish over time as they compost. 
but they uh, supposedly hold in more moisture and of course nutrients, which are feeding the things that you've planted on it. Um, but I hope that there'll be more uh, information um, forthcoming from the various sources of growing food uh, information places about hugel culture because uh, even again in the city but certainly in the country too there's so much dead wood and brush and leaves there's plenty of biomass out there uh, to be creating uh, the beds that can help nourish the, the plants. Yeah I think that's interesting to think about producing your own food and how are you how are you managing fertility in your gardens for those crops um prior to karen for you in the past how would you kind of man were there techniques you would use to try to manage their fertility you know prior to the hugel culture piece but um mm -hmm. most people tend to be composting to recycle nutrients but yeah, we've done, we still do composting. And, and of course we got manure every year, but I'm of an age, shoveling manure is one of my least favorite things to do, not because of the smell, but because of the weight of it. It's really heavy <laughs> and I'm too old to be doing that. Um, so we, two years ago, got our last load of manure. And now for nitrogen, I'm doing soybean meal which you can get at Blue Seal, they sell it as feeds. You can get a 50 pound bag for like 18 bucks. And um, so I'm top dressing the soybean meal, which is a lot lighter than manure. So I am doing that. And we add things like some rock phosphate or green sand, lime if we need to adjust. So we do some of those inputs, but we are organic. So uh, we're not doing other kinds of um, inputs into the garden. And then, um, because I'm also heavily um, with leaves and some wood chips, all of that is then biodegrading into the soil and feeding the soil every year um, just because it's in contact with the soil malt. So leaves are really actually a big source of nu nutrients for our garden. And they, that suppresses weeds and holds the moisture. We do have a drip irrigation system that we got from Fedco seeds um, and drip irrigation, of course, is much more um, efficient use of water. Um, in Monroe, we did sprinklers. We had a well and we were pretty profligate with water, <laughs> I'm uh, ashamed to say. Yeah. But now we use the drip irrigation and to do that and then have the mulch means that uh, two summers ago it was really dry and I was amazed once the plants were established how little watering we actually had to do uh, once we had mulched. Uh, plants can survive quite a bit if you're helping to preserve the moisture. Yeah, it is yeah. quite amazing how much moisture can be saved in soil right under some mulch. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. Uh, the, the soil in Guilford was uh, cut over woodland that I bought and it had been pasture before that, so it meant it was sort of doubly depleted. Um, so there was a lot of um, manure composting, piling the brush up. Um, my garden ended up being where one of the brush piles were, which is when I heard of the, the piles, um, and planted the fruit trees in the same way because there wasn't a lot of soil under it. And now I have 37 years, but I have you can put your arms down in and just pull up the soil. It's like black gold. It's it's beautiful. Um, here where I've moved to now, it is actually truthfully trash, 
gravel, trash, gravel. They built it up down here to make it. Um, so there's not real soil here, but with seaweed, that's something we have a lot of here. And after a big storm, a lot of it washes up in. It's also mm -hmm. something the nearings used, which was seaweed. I've uh, been putting that on the uh, ground and building the ground up above because of the, the lowness of the land and the water, um, which may eventually come up. But right now, we still are dry here and trying to make the soil more fertile. Um, rabbit manure is one of the ones I used a lot because you could use that directly. It also gives you a good batch of worms, and the worms work in the soil a lot. Um, the leaves here, people will bring leaves here and chips, wood chips as well, because we are in town. Where out of town, we didn't have a lot of that kind of opportunity, so we used more of the um, animal manure in the gardens that was mm -hmm. composted. But I can see what I, I almost, I, I, leaving my land was one thing, but leaving my beautiful soil was probably one of the hardest things. <laughs> and my children are there now with, and have gardens, but it's, it's, it's something you grow attached to the more you feed it. And, yeah. Yep. Well, it's a, it's a, a lifelong investment, right? Yeah. It's a living organism, organism, your, your soil. And you can feel that when you put your hands in it and put your plants in and yeah and are your can i ask if your children are following in your footsteps there with the with the gardening or i would have said a few years ago no <laughs> but now i can say yes to all four um three of them have no all of them have chickens now that's true <laughs> and then they all uh have garden space um Two have leaned a little more toward flowers, but it's still gardening. Um, and then I have one son who is, is raising livestock and providing food, um, selling and providing for others. He's very generous. Um, but he does. He, lo he loves the garden and so do the other children. Yeah. But they, they didn't when they were in their early 20s or at first. Mm -hmm. Came later. And they missed the, the taste of food that tasted really good and they wanted to have that again it's good to know that they recognize that difference <laughs> yes <laughs> you are tuned in to common ground radio and today's show we are discussing homesteading here in maine my guests on the show are karen mary's daughter who lives in bangor maine and rhonda welcome who lives in lubeck maine this is a pre-recorded show so we are not taking phone calls today. Thank you. And Karen, the, the place that you had left in Monroe, was that handed down through family or? No, we were, um, we had been living in Stillwater and wanted to buy, renting. We wanted to buy our own home. And at that point we could not afford anything in Bangor. And we also were intrigued by the community land trust model. So we actually were able to purchase much more expensively a home on a land trust in Monroe. So we lived there for 24 years and built up the gardens. Uh -huh. And, um, but then my um, more elderly mother moved back to Maine when my father died and was in Bangor and we were getting older and I just felt like, I wanted to be in town and closer to her and um but we didn't want to give up gardening so there was that question that was we had a list of things we were looking for in a house which we 
felt we could afford at this point, we'd saved and we sold the house in Monroe. Um, but right up at the top of the list was enough land for a garden. And, and we thought we would do a smaller garden, but it's not a whole lot smaller than what we had before. It's really, I mean, every inch of the backyard to the property line is garden. Uh, so we do have a little bit of lawn that we have to mow, but not a whole lot. Not enough to have a, a miniature horse. No, no, no. <laughs> that might not be allowed in Bangor anyways, I guess. I don't know. They let the chickens go. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Maybe they're just turning their heads these days to let, let people do what they need to do to, to survive. Um, one thing I did want to ask that you, that um, Karen, you had touched on a little bit is just the economics piece mm -hmm. um, and not so much about, you know, money coming in and money going out, but um, could you Jamie, maybe just speak a little bit about of that, trying to stay out of that mainstream economy and thinking more alternative in, in your own production at home? Yeah, I, I was fortunate that when I was a young adult, I did go to college and it was before the price of college just went right through the roof. So I left college with a very small debt that I was able to pay off quickly. But what I see happening to young people that breaks my heart is they come out of college with this huge, huge debt and that ties them down. It limits so drastically what they can do um, in the next few years at least assuming they're able to pay it off. I know some have been crippled by it and, and are just not even managing to pay it off. Um, but because um, I'm living a lifestyle that's out of the mainstream, I have a lot more choices. And like Rhonda, I have time. I've said for a long time, I don't, I don't have money, I have a lot of time. So I have worked part-time, except for the first three years after college, I worked full-time. I've never worked full-time since. I've worked part-time, enough, just enough money for the cash stuff that you need to have. And then we raise most of our own food. And then I have time to volunteer, like the school gardens, um, to give back to the community. I've done a lot of volunteer work for a lot of organizations over the years because I had that kind of time. And I see what happens to young people, that they're so... Um, hampered by debt and by expectations of what a mainstream life should look like that they don't have the time or the freedom to think about what they really want to do with their lives. Um, I would encourage a lot more people to consider that time is more valuable than money, um, but it's hard for them to make that decision when they are facing so much debt. Rhonda, for you, or, um, did you work off of the farm or work off the homestead, or did you find... Uh, yeah, I did. I uh, In high school, they gave a um, nurse's aid program when I was in high school, and I took that, and I always said if every 18-year-old worked in a nursing home for a while, they might live their lives differently. I think that when you encounter death firsthand as a young person, you realize that life has an expiration date and not everybody knows when that is. Um, and I went to the vocational school in Calais back then and did secretarial studies for a couple years. And uh, 
tried my hand at being a secretary. <laughs> I don't think I was a very good one, but I did work in the Office of Economic Development in Piscataquis County. And one of the fun things they had me do on a CETA program back then was go around and map where all the uh, farm stands were in Piscataquis County. And um, I'd also been in 4-H as a high school student. Um, so I found that very, very interesting. And then when I had children, um, I worked part-time but not full-time until they were older. And then I went back to college late and studied veterinary science and agriculture at the University of Maine Orono and graduated with a degree and became a veterinary technician. And I cared about food. So I became a federal state slash egg inspector because I wanted your food to be good. And I went to work at the Costa's Egg Farm, which isn't as famous now as it was in the 70s, but it was quite infamous in its time. Um, I got disillusioned about my ability to do anything about food that way because if it wasn't USDA inspected, if it didn't say that on the carton, they could run eggs any way they wanted to, and I could have sit in my office. And I wasn't allowed to go in the chicken barns. I could only look at the eggs. I couldn't look at the chickens. And um, I saw people wearing masks in the chicken coop. And I, I know we're all wearing masks now, but <laughs> we weren't wearing masks then. And I thought, well, how are the chickens being in that chicken coop if they don't have masks? And um, yeah, I, I had to walk away from it because I wasn't changing how our food was, what it was happening before it got to your table. I, I wanted to do it through the system and I couldn't do it through the system. Um, though I have a lot of respect for the federal inspectors that, that do inspect our produce and our meat and our eggs. They have a very hard job and they have a lot of rules to go by. And I think they, well, they actually do a phenomenal job, actually, <laughs> to get all the food to people that they do. Um, so then at that, at that point, I, I went back to more, more back to my homestead and have not worked full time since. I have worked as a veterinary technician um, and I've been working now as in, in writing. So it changes my time schedule. And, but well, so often I hear about people who work, 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 and look forward to retirement. And finally in retirement, you know, they'll get to relax or do what they want. And then some of those people don't survive long after they retire. And and I feel like I've been semi-retired my whole adult life. And <laughs> uh, again, just an incredible privilege to be able to live the way that I live. And part of that is because I've chosen to live more simply and not have, I mean, we rarely go out to eat, of course now, not at all, but um, we've never done a lot of that. We don't buy a lot of new clothes. Um, you know, we don't take a lot of fancy trips. Um, our health is good, so we don't have big health costs, knock on wood. Some of that's luck and genes. Some of that is healthy living, um, but um, I just, I just get to have time and have people in our current culture get to say that. I think that's the meaning of homesteading for me. And it, it is raising my own food and it is getting away from some of the um, obligations that other people just naturally do every day without even giving it any thought. Homesteading gives you time to think about where you want to put your, your energies. 
because um, it's not always a catch. It's not always trying to catch up. You you have time to to contemplate, and and there's a lot of joy in growing food that you enjoy. And I think by doing that, it um, it builds on itself. That homesteading gives you a joyful life. I think it's it's why so many people all think if I just have my own little piece of land and and if you do have your own little piece of land without any debt, you do have a lot more choices. Yeah. And people in the city have lawns, lots and lots and lots of lawns. <laughs> and there's just so much land available in the city that right now is grass. And I, you know, I'm not going around doing to lots of neighbors that you can do something else rather than sit on that mower uh, for how many hours every week mowing that grass. Neighbors, two doors who, who mows up along the side of our raspberries just tilled up a patch in his backyard. Now I haven't seen him plant anything in it yet, but um, you know, I, we might have another garden right next door anytime <clears throat> soon now. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you're providing some inspiration to the neighbors. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we are kind of getting getting through on time, I guess, and I feel like kind of the the last comments you both made were kind of great um, great things to mention. If I were to ask you any closing comments at all, but um, before we actually do kind of wrap up here, uh, any additional closing closing comments or words of encouragement for, for beginners out there? Yeah, I think people don't realize what is possible in terms of an alternative lifestyle. And um, so maybe I'll, I'll borrow from my partner, Larry, who does his outside the box piece for WERU that we need to think outside the box. And, and again, I hope that we're a role model for that, that, uh, just that thinking of you live in the city, you have a lawn, that's it, um, that people could, could think outside the box. Or there's a pear tree outside my yard. You know, it's a street tree, so it can't be any good. But it's like, oh, we could eat that fruit. So I'm hoping to be a role model. Great. I think, I think I'll, I'll go with your box theory, but I'm going to make it a circle. Um, when you homestead and you live in a way that you're connected, it, it, it all comes around and you know that you are part of it all and all of it is part of you. And that's, I think what I've gotten the most from homesteading. I feel connected. Great. Well, I think those are both um, encouraging and, and great closing words for us for, uh, for the show today. Um, so I think as we get here, we, <clears throat> excuse me, we can just kind of, wrap up and I'd like to thank each of you for taking the time to speak with me today. So just to remind folks that um, I've been speaking with Karen, Mary's daughter who lives in Bangor, but spent uh, a number of years homesteading in Monroe. So Karen, I really appreciate you taking the, the time to speak with me today. Thank you. It was great fun. Um, and also Rhonda Welcome, who is uh, currently living in Lubeck, but spent a few decades homesteading in Guilford. So uh, Rhonda, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to meet with me in this virtual world here so we can produce a show for our listeners in a couple of days.
yes. And hopefully next year we can have Farm and Homestead Days again and some folks will, will join us. And it's been very nice talking to you both. Thank you. Great. Thank you both. This has been Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU. My name is CJ Walk, and I am the host for Common Ground Radio, where today we were talking about homesteading in Maine. Common Ground Radio can be heard every month here on WERU on the second Thursday of the month at 4 p.m. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more great programming.